1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Roger Cruz and Richard Roberts, authors of Changing Minds How Aging Affects Language and How Language Affects Aging, published in 2019 by MIT Press. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you.
3: Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure.
2: Well, so let's let's dive in. The topic of this book is a is a pretty universal one, since most of us use language in some way, and we we all age. Uh, how did you bet uh, to get interested into the uh, in the topic of this book?
3: Well, actually, uh, Malcolm, this is our uh, third book uh, together. Uh, the first one was on uh, language learning uh, for adults, and um, we had a we had a really fun time writing that book. And then the second book was on cross cultural communication. And um, then for this topic, Roger, I think you were having a conversation with the publisher, right? Do you want to tell that story?
1: So I was um, talking with the editor who had um, handled our first two books, and he was talking about how there really wasn't a book in the marketplace that uh, addressed the issues of language and aging. And so I thought that was an interesting topic to look at. And the more that um, I looked into it, the more I realized that a lot of questions that I had simply weren't being addressed by uh, books that already existed. So, you know, what happens to language as um, you get older really is a topic with a great universal interest, but really hadn't, the research hadn't really been taken from the journal articles and book chapters and made accessible to uh, a broader audience. And so that was really
2: what we were trying to do in our book. So you got interested in the topic of this book in part because of the publisher prompting you. Uh, What's your, what's your respective backgrounds that enables you to take up this topic and make it accessible as you say
1: well i think that trying to um do that with our first two books talking about foreign language learning and also talking about cross-cultural communication gave us a an idea of how to take these kind of complex topics and make them more accessible to a broader audience and so that definitely i think um, made it easier to take this topic which is one that I've had an interest in for a long time. I actually did a postdoc in cognitive gerontology at Duke University. This was many years ago, but I always had that as an interest in mind. And we had, in writing the first book about foreign language learning in adulthood, thought a lot about these issues of, you know, what gets harder as you get older and maybe what things get easier. And so we really tried to put those things together into this book.
3: Yeah, you know, my, my mom was a social worker and she worked with uh, with uh, uh, older adults in our community for a long, long time. And so these were also topics that you know she would talk about and kinds of these issues of aging. So, and like you said at the beginning, we're all getting older. So I think there's also kind of a personal component as well that as we start to investigate it and look at it and think about it, um, a lot of things kind of hit home personally, I think, in a way as well, which also kind of, I think, allows us to uh, try to want to, you know, talk about these issues uh, with a broader audience too.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now let's, let's think big picture here. What is it that you, you've talked about this a little bit, that this is universal um, and you're trying to make some ideas accessible. What are the big takeaways that you want readers to, to get after they read the book? Is it, is it supposed to help us as we age? Is it supposed to help us with how we interact with older people? Is this to, to prompt new research in uh, psychology? What's the, what are the goals for the book? Can it be all of the above?
3: <laughs> so, you know, I, I think one of the kind of the big takeaways from it is that, you know, language itself is basically very stable across the lifespan. I think a lot of times people are under the impression that the language itself is changing, but it's really the other, other you know, cognitive functions that are changing. And the, the, uh, the metaphor, you know, on the cover of the book, right, is the sandcastle. And that's really kind of the metaphor for that we're using. Uh, for how uh, language is affected by aging. And it's really, you know, the foundational cognitive processes that are maybe the most affected and language itself is relatively stable. But of course, when other systems are, have a, you know, are maybe negatively impacted, um, then I think that there's repercussions for that. Uh, Roger, what do you think? Yeah, this
1: idea that um, language is kind of allowing us to see some of these changes that are going on, for example, in memory and perception, we aren't really aware of necessarily of how much our perceptual abilities are declining as we get older. We get to the point where we have to ask people to repeat themselves, or we can't hear people in noisy restaurant very easily. But those are having very important implications for how we interact in conversations, and even our ability to see can affect uh, our ability to therefore use language. So it's this idea that the foundations of language are kind of being eroded away, kind of like a sandcastle on a beach as the tide comes in, and over time, uh, that can begin to affect uh, language. But our really, our big message is that language is surprisingly resilient compared to what's happening, for example, in memory or perception
3: as we get older.
2: Interesting. Yeah, yeah. and we'll, we'll talk about the the inner interactions of this. I'm sorry, did, were you going to say something? Oh,
3: well, the other thing I was going to say was that, uh, basically, um, it's also not a passive process. I think another like big message for us is that um, you know, sometimes people look at aging as something that happens to you. And I think that one of the things that we kind of highlight in this book is that, um, it doesn't have to be like that. It's something that we are interacting with and that there are, um, you know, it, it's, it's not just something that we, we can't do anything about. So I think it's a very hopeful, I think our message is very hopeful as well, in that there are lots of things that you can kind of do to, um, you know, age successfully, quote unquote, uh, with
2: yeah. Great. Let's let's talk about some of these major concepts in terms of the processes like vision and, and hearing and, and some of these other key ideas, because you start the book basically introducing readers who may not be familiar with with these um, concepts because you think they need to understand them in order to appreciate the uh, the studies that come come later in the investigation into the, re- the relationship between aging and um and language now in this space we the time we have we can't get into everything but what are what are some of the big ideas that maybe our listeners need to understand in order to appreciate what you're doing
1: well I think one of the most important ideas that probably most people aren't aware of is this idea of a cognitive reserve research is showing that as people get older some people seem to be much more protected from the ravages of the aging process compared to people who are are um, not aging as well. And um, there are a number of factors that seem to be at work there. And we can talk about those perhaps in a little bit, but this idea that you might in fact have more gas in your gas tank, so to speak, that will allow you to deal better with uh, biological changes that are changing uh, the brain. That's really an important concept and one that I think a lot of people aren't aware of in terms of being a major determinant of, of aging well in terms of being able to use language.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, we also talk a little bit about just how people study uh, aging and we look at um, uh, the, how the, the, the research paradigms themselves actually have an impact on uh, the way in which we conceptualize aging. So thinking about stages, for example, and um, when people talk about stages and they look at that, it's based on research that's done um, in a particular way. And so I think we want to, we try to kind of introduce a little bit of that to kind of let people know that. Um, when we talk about the results of research, they, they are—you know—the result is also a result of how it was conducted, not just of some you know, like pure phenomenon. I, I think we spend a little bit of time at the beginning of the book explaining that as well.
2: Yeah, maybe can you develop that just a little bit more? So there's this this idea that there are different stages of life, and uh, researchers study people in a couple. I, I guess you look at uh, two to three different ways that that research is done. With regard to people's uh, stages of life,
3: yeah, that's right. And I think that you know one of the ways that people you know look at at, at uh, change over time is through cross-sectional kinds of studies, where they'll look at um, different groups of people at the same time. So, ten-year-olds, twenty-year-olds, thirty-year-olds, forty-year-olds, fifty-year-olds, and um, that's a very common way to to study and to do the research on that. But uh, there is a, a problem with that in that. It's not as if 10-year-olds and 50-year-olds are exactly the same, except that their age is different. You know, there are different groups of people that have had different kinds of experiences, different life experiences. I mean, just think about what we're going through with COVID right now and, you know, the way a 50-year-old is maybe handling the situation and the way a 10-year-old is considering the situation, it may be very different. And so in 20 years, if researchers look back on the impact of what COVID had on people, it may be different from people who are 30 at that point versus people who are then 70 at that point. Roger, do you want to add something to that too? Yeah,
1: it's also the case that a lot of researchers look at people who are relatively young, like college students, because they are a sample that's available to researchers at universities. And also people who are older, perhaps people who are retired. And the book, would talk about this idea of there being a missing middle between about the ages of 25 and 65 we simply know a lot less about language and language change during that period because there's so much less research being done on people who are in that middle part of their life. Comparing younger and older adults is important and fine, but we also really try to emphasize in the book the studies that actually showed what's happening during the middle part of one's life as well, because that's obviously a crucial part of the story of how language is changing over one's lifetime.
2: Right. And so I guess you, you mentioned a little bit in that discussion that it, a long a longitudinal longitudinal study would be w- w- great in the sense that you could follow someone, you know, group of people from age ten all the way up to age seventy five. But the that there are some challenges in actually uh, having those sorts of studies available to us. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean those
1: not being tenure friendly. You know, it's not easy to um, <laughs> wait fifty years to publish your research at yeah. that academia tends to uh, reward very very much.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. So um, we can kind of stop and introduce some of these concepts as we as we go along where it's where it's relevant. But that I think that that sets up a little bit what kind of research we're, we're looking at in this book. And we'll maybe as you as you talk about the studies, you can, of course, specify which which sort of study they are. Um, so uh, let me let me start with the uncontroversial stuff. So what is it that is uncontroversial about how aging and language interact um, if there is anything that's uncontroversial.
3: Well, I I think, I mean, one of the things we talked about is how stable it tends to be. I think we saw that, you know, over and over again. And uh, um, I I think I was struck by that a little bit. I kind of expected there to be more of that. Um, But there are some other things too. For example, uh, word finding uh, difficulty that does tend to increase uh, over time. You know, I just noticed myself, having more difficulty finding words. And I, I wonder sometimes, is that just because I'm paying more attention to it or is it because it's actually happening? And um, the research kind of shows that uh, for people, um, you know, in their 80s, they do have more word finding difficulties. But the actual differences are, are, when you think about it, you know, what's statistically significant and what's actually, you know, of practical significance don't have to be the same thing. And so we're going from like maybe people in their 80s from having uh, four, you know, four times a week, maybe having these kinds of difficulties that they recognized For younger people, maybe twice a week. So, in practical terms, um, there might be more, uh, but um, I mean, there really are more. But is it really practically different? Um, so, I think that's a little, maybe a little bit uncontroversial. What do you think, Roger?
1: Yeah, I definitely think that. Um, judging from what we talk about in the book, that there are some very um, general phenomena that are uncontroversial working memory is clearly declining as people are getting older processing speed is declining as people are getting older and obviously those two things can have important implications then for for language in general so i think in terms of basic cognitive processing and some of the not so great news there that that pretty much is i think um widely agreed upon by people in the field
2: Mm -hmm. okay now let's let's go back to um, and so we'll, we'll want to talk about the way that your um, your cognitive processing impacts your language and so on. But let's go back just for a minute to Richard, what you just mentioned about the the word finding and whether that's something that is posing difficulties or it's just a matter of you know being maybe more salient to you. Uh, in the book, you talk about some research around that and and about whether or not. Uh, maybe things like stereotype threat are playing a role. Can you talk a little bit about that? either either one of you, Richard or Roger?
1: Yeah, the idea of stereotype threat really comes out of work done on looking at African American versus white um, subjects in taking tests of ability. The idea being that if you are a member of a group for which there are negative stereotypes that might negatively impact your ability to perform a uh, task that calls those, abilities into question, and that's been documented uh, in a number of studies, but it's also probably having an effect uh, for older adults as well. If you're worrying about your memory and your word finding problems and somebody gives you an uh, intelligence test, you're probably going to be more concerned about that than somebody who is um, uh, much younger, and so as a result, this idea of a stereotype threat can um, manifest itself uh, for older adults as
2: well. Did you have anything, anything to add on to that?
3: No, I, mean, I think that's that's yeah. right. And I think that sometimes, you know, like we do that ourselves, right? Um, mm-hmm. I have, you know, I might say I'm having a senior moment um, when someone who's 21 might have the exact same experience, but they won't call it a, unless they're senior in college, mm-hmm. I guess, but they won't
2: call it a senior moment. <laughs> right. And so this is, um, this is a theme that seems to also emerge throughout the book is that it's not just the the processes that are going on, but it's a, a way of sort of framing or thinking about those processes that is important for people to um, to reflect on. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think with the word finding stuff, particularly
1: um, some of the early research used what are called diary studies. They gave uh, younger and older adults blank books to kind of keep track of uh, their word finding problems over time. And they found that the older adults had lots and lots of entries in their, in their journals, and the younger adults didn't have that many. But you really can't take away from that this idea that there really are differences, absolute differences, because obviously younger adults are, quite frankly, busier and probably don't write down every word-finding problem that, that occurs to them. Older adults are very vigilant for the possibility of there being cognitive declines, and they have more time to kind of sit around and, and fret about it and write down these things as they occur. Later research followed up and found those differences, but the early research using diary studies really shows how it can be problematic to have a certain kind of study design because it it might tend to uh, magnify and exacerbate these kinds of differences that may exist, but but magnify them in a way that's not really appropriate.
2: Yeah. And so let's uh, maybe I'll ask this question now. Um, one of the things that comes up th- through, throughout the book, and of course, any, anyone looking at these kinds of studies, is the question of whether we're talking ca- causation or correlation, right? Um, are, are, are we looking here at a, at a causal relationship between uh, aging and effects on language, or, or is it just just some, something else? It's just the co- correlation between um, you know, these, these phenomenon. In the studies that you've looked at, um, keeping in mind some of the distinctions that you just made about the kinds of studies um, that are at issue here, what are some of the ways that researchers try to understand what, what is actually a matter of a causal relationship between aging and language use, and what is maybe just a, a correlation and not something we should take as a, as a causal connection?
1: Well, this is really a perennial issue in psychology and the behavioral sciences in general, because unless you can do an actual experiment, you really can't make a causal statement. All you can really do is say there's an association between two variables. And uh, for example, in the book, we talk about how one study conducted by the Yale School of Public Health found that reading fiction has an association with a 20 percent longer—I'm sorry, 20 percent lower mortality rate, which is a pretty provocative finding. But the problem is, it could work either way. Maybe reading fiction causes or stays off cognitive decline, but maybe it's just that cognitively healthy people are more likely to read. So what you have to do as a researcher is to control for a host of variables that might be influencing that, that association. So for example, in the study, the researcher is controlled for things like age, gender, education, marital status, affluence, and still found the association, which does suggest that it's real. The problem, of course, is that you really can't do a true experiment here. You can't take a group of children and say, well, you can't read fiction your entire lives, and these kids, you know, here's here's Proust, and uh, go wild with that, and uh, wait for 60 years to see what's going to happen. So unfortunately, some really interesting questions can't be answered, except by these kind of more um, correlational studies, but they are more problematic, obviously.
3: But I think like the good news for that is that it really doesn't matter in a very practical way because what we're saying is, you know, keep reading, you know, and keep talking to people and keep, you know, trying to get some exercise if you can. And so all of the the correlational, causational kinds of things that, from a scientific standpoint, you can't tease apart very well. Um, it's not as if something is like really kind of bad for you and we really need to get that right. It's like, well, reading more fiction and talking to more people and reminiscing in the correct way and, and these kinds of things, I think, are all you know, fine either way, even if we don't know for sure which direction mm-hmm. it really goes.
2: Yeah. And are these connected to the idea of uh, cognitive reserve that we talked about earlier, this idea that you can uh, sort of build up some sort of, uh, I guess, how would, you, how would you explain what it is that's being, being built up um, when, when you're doing these things like reading and writing diaries and, and talking with other people?
3: I kind of think of it like that, actually. I kind of think you're like adding gas to the gas tank. What do you think, Roger? Do you think of it the same way?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the places where you see this very clearly is in a study that was done looking at people whose brains really should have shown, um, or people who during their lifetimes really should have shown uh, some very serious cognitive declines. At autopsy, these brains were found to be riddled with plaques and and tangles that are associated with, for example, Alzheimer's disease. So some people really do show these kinds of um, behavioral correlates with underlying biological damage and some people simply don't. And there are some factors that seem to be protective, things like physical exercise, educational attainment, and social activity. And then certain factors seem to be working against cognitive reserve and that would be things like um, uh, stress and depression, tobacco use, hypertension, obesity. So it really is the case that there are some very clear health um, factors end up influencing cognitive factors in a very major sort of way and so to the degree that you have these protective factors it allows you to to some degree to overcome some of the biological um, changes that are occurring in the brain and gives you the ability to keep performing at a higher level than people who have perhaps less reserve
0: Mm -hmm.
2: now is this the um the case of the nuns that you're talking about with uh the the plaque in the brain I'm um, uh, where they, where they found the, um, cause that's that, that I'm, I remember that in the book being striking the, the sort of, uh, looking at these different nuns in this, uh, I guess it was a, in a convent over time and then doing an autopsy and a brain scan. Is that the one you're alluding to, or was it a different case?
1: That's a very good example of it. I think, yeah. Uh, David Snowden got permission from hundreds of nuns living in the upper Midwest to, um, look at their brains after death, because that allows you to unambiguously determine that somebody was suffering from a form of dementia like Alzheimer's disease, and finding that, you know, for the ones who had really remained mentally active, they really did show much more uh, resilience towards uh, cognitive aging compared to ones who perhaps were less active in that way.
2: Yeah. There was another interesting thing about that, that Story that I remember in the research in the book, and that was in looking at two different nuns and their writing earlier in life. Can you explain the situation there? What it was it What was it that people were trying to identify from the writing itself, and um, were they able to, in other words, diagnose dementia early on based on based on someone's uh, some features of someone's writing?
1: Yeah, so these nuns have been asked to write narratives when they entered the convents basically in their late teenage, early 20s. And um, these narratives just got kind of filed away. So when David Snowden was doing his research, he uh, could only work with the period of time for which he was actually given them, for example, these kinds of cognitive tasks on a yearly basis. And then one day he stumbled into the archives of this convent and discovered these um, narratives that had been written decades earlier by these nuns. And suddenly he realized he had a time machine. He could go back in time to see whether or not there were an between a writing style of these nuns when they were younger and their cognitive abilities later in life. And he did find, in fact, um, things like idea density seemed to be predictive of the nuns who would uh, show differences in terms of this um, um, developing dementia that people with higher idea density decades earlier were showing less effect in terms of being uh, diagnosed uh, with dementia when their brains were examined after autopsy.
0: Hmm.
2: Richard, did you want to add anything? To, no,
3: I mean to, I think it's fascinating and, and to think about. Um, I, I think to me, like maybe the, the 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 harder thing about that would be when somebody might say, "Well, there you go. There's nothing I can do. It's it's mm-hmm. it's already set." When I'm 21, you'll be able to tell later on whether or not. And I think that that's um, that would not be true, although there's no studies to look at that. I would say that, uh, um, you know, you can continue to grow and develop and do those kinds of things as well. But I, I, that message, I wouldn't want that message to be, Mm -hmm. it's, it's already been decided for you when you're 20 or so that you're going where, how you'll be later on when you're 85 or 95.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Yeah. And I guess a, a follow-up question here about the relationship between things like idea density and vocabulary and grammatical complexity and things like dementia or Alzheimer's. Can we diagnose someone as having dementia or Alzheimer's on the basis of just their their language use? Is that, is that a, a feasible diagnostic tool or what are the limitations there?
1: Well, you have to have a lot of language and that's really the problem, because most mm-hmm. of us don't actually have our uh, conversations transcribed or publish a lot of uh, our writing during our lifetimes. But obviously, in the case of authors, you can do this. And the book we discussed uh, a couple of examples, um, well-known authors like Iris Murdoch and Agatha Christie, who unfortunately did develop dementia um, late in life. Researchers have looked at their output across their lifespan and found that as they were getting older, they were showing a similar kind of trend compared to uh, authors who aged more healthily in terms of their cognitive abilities. So, for example, Murdoch would use a lot of word and phrase repetitions, and a vocabulary size shrank, and that was found with Agatha Christie as well. And interestingly, it was also found for people like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, uh, political figures who obviously are performing verbally and having their words transcribed and they can be studied later on. A similar finding was found where they were using small vocabularies, more general kinds of nouns, lots of lexical pauses and fillers. So it does seem like if you have a corpus of language, it is possible to find associations between the language use and then the possibility of developing
2: uh, Mm -hmm. dementia later on. Mm Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, but uh, of course, as you're as you're suggesting, uh, for individual people, one, we don't have that corpus, and two, we want to be careful about things like stereotype threat or being sort of overly attentive to our own aging processes and over overgeneralizing based on, oh, I can't remember that word uh, and things like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, like Richard was saying earlier, if you're trying to um, make a, you know, a causal prediction in each case, you really can't do it. We're talking about very general trends here, but clearly, you know, they they do seem to illuminate this idea that there might be some specific uh, factors
2: that might suggest the possibility of problems later in life. Yeah. Let's talk, let's turn to, um, so we've been talking about writing a little bit and we've been talking, uh, about Alzheimer's and dementia. Let's talk about conversations. I think when, I think when maybe people think about stereotypes about aging, um, many of which are sort of negative. One stereotype is often the idea of an older person who gets started on a on a story and then just kind of uh, rambles or, or speaks at length and uh, isn't, um, to the younger person, making much sense or making sorts of connections. You talk a little bit about conversation in the book with regard to aging. What have researchers... What have researchers... That. <laughs> What have researchers found about conversation as one ages?
3: Well, I think, you know, um, I find even for myself sometimes that when I'm talking to people, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. And I think that one of the reasons why, and we talk about this in the book, is that, you know, older people's conversational goals might be very different from younger people's conversational goals. So what I'm trying to do, uh, maybe, for example, if I'm speaking to an audience of, of people who are much younger than I am, I feel like I need to give them background on why I'm saying the things that I'm saying. And I think that, for example, they may not, you know, they may not have been alive in the time period that I'm talking about. So I need to, I, am wanting to have a lot of context and, uh, the younger people maybe are feeling like, I don't really need all of that. Why are you going on and on about this? It was a simple question. And, um, so I think that, you know, it's not that older people necessarily ramble like I'm doing right now. It's just that, uh, they have a lot they want to try to say and they want to give a lot of context and it, it's maybe interpreted differently by people of different generations
1: and i think it's true that younger adults really tend to have the attitude of tell me what i need to know give me this information whereas the older adult might want to just tell a good story and include lots of seemingly irrelevant detail and context which might make somebody who is just wanting to get the information much more impatient so it really is the case that you might see clashing discourse goals, explaining why many younger adults might find older adults more uh, discursive and, and less focused in terms of telling a story or, you know, transmitting, transmitting information.
2: Right. And, and do, do these discourse goals uh, by age, do those hold up in terms of uh, across generations? Uh, or in, in other words, is it just young people today, quote unquote, or is this a s- sort of feature of younger versus older that holds up depending on, regardless of the generation.
3: That sounds like a great study.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> Just thinking about that. Uh, yeah, I think that's very interesting. And I, I don't know for sure, Roger, do you know of research for sure that would say that?
1: Yeah, it's very difficult to do this cross-generational research because once again, like longitudinal work, it really takes a long time to kind of find out these results. But I think I think it might be a little bit of both. There are probably differences as generations go past, but also differences just in terms of your perspective when you're younger versus when you're older.
3: I I was thinking, you know, uh, as you were asking that question, I was thinking about uh, comedy and stand-up comics, and I was thinking about the differences in the style of them, and when you think about, like, you watch Milton Berle or somebody from the 1950s in an old broadcast, and the way they tell a story and the way they're trying to get the laugh. And for comedians today, it can be, it's very different over time, you know, these kind of old school people. So I think in a way, I, I don't know of a study of that. I'm kind of interested in trying to do something on that maybe, but um, it's quite interesting to think about if those kinds of um, storytelling. Uh, discourse goals are very different. And, um, you know, as you know, I'm in Japan and in Japan, there's a tradition uh, of, a, there's a storytelling tradition as well in um, uh, in the comedy places it's called rakugo and uh, they also have a very kind of set way of doing it that that hasn't changed much but modern comedians in Japan don't tell stories the same way so i think that's interesting yeah,
2: yeah that, that's that'd be interesting to you could maybe just look at some look at some corpus and and see what uh, what comes up about it you, you mentioned culture a second ago you talk also about uh bilingualism and, and different languages which often go along with different cultures in the book what's what's the relationship between bilingualism and uh aging is, is there a, a a difference in how we use the our, our multilingual abilities as we age what's going on there
1: It's been uh, argued that um, knowing more than one language might be protective cognitively in terms of the effects of aging. And there was some early research that was quite convincing about that. But later research has tended to be a bit less um, clear in terms of showing there there, would really be a a large bilingual advantage. There may be a small advantage for certain things, but um, it may not be as globally um, efficacious, as some people might think. It really is the case that um, learning a second language is really a, a wonderful thing for a whole variety of reasons, but if the primary goal is to try to think of it as being a form of brain training to um, uh, perhaps make the uh, possibility of dementia less, the research has not been kind to that idea over the last few years. There's also a publication bias. People who find differences tend to get published more easily, people who are not finding differences, that's, that's a harder uh, kind of article to publish. And so I think there might be some, um, uh, issues going on with that as well, where it's, it's really just kind of reflecting what kinds of work people being able to publish on this topic as well.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, like you on, said, Roger, on. I mean, it makes your life richer to do it though. Right. I mean, that's the point. If you're doing it for the wrong reasons, I, I think then it might seem like an onerous task, but um, I think it just makes your life richer to study another language, regardless Absolutely. of who you are.
2: Yep. Yeah. So one of the, I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the book is that that it does seem like there are limits cognitively in terms of um, how easy it is to acquire a language later in life. Of course, children are, are are known to be better at acquiring multiple languages, and there's a certain age beyond which it you're you're not going to have the same kind of um, ability to. Um, speak it in, uh, you know, without an accent in the same way, things like that. Um, What about when you get older? Do you um, lose your earlier language abilities? Or is this just a matter of uh, disuse and not a matter of, for instance, uh, age, age age-related sorts of phenomenon?
3: Well, I I think that, you know, this is one of the things we talked about a lot in the first book, and it, it was about this idea of how adults just learn languages differently than children do. And, um, and so you need to make sure that the way you're approaching the language as an adult maximizes the kinds of strategic uh, approaches and strategic thinking that adults use uh, rather than the very kind of heavily rote memorization aspects of kids. And like we're talking about in this book, you know, memory decline is one of those things that we kind of see. And so an adult who's trying to learn a foreign language if they're relying on rote memory as one of their their main tools to get the language that may not ultimately be as successful uh, whereas an adult who has a rich set of world experiences um, is using those experiences up uh, drawing on those experiences to learn the new language i think they'll have they'll enjoy it much more and i think they'll have more success roger what do you think
1: yeah i would definitely agree with all of that and i think this idea that because you can't learn a language in later life without there being an accent, I think people really tend to a, a, attach too much emphasis on this, this idea of speaking with an accent. It um, it really is not as big a deal, I think, as a lot of people would argue that it is. And in fact, some people would argue that it can, be, it can make you sound distinguished or charming, and so it's not always seen in a negative way. But I think this idea of being able to only think of yourself as fluent if you can talk and speak in a way that is indistinguishable from a native speaker is really the wrong kind of goal to have in mm. terms of learning a, a second language. Yep. Yeah. That's absolutely right. In fact,
3: it's, I find that like, because I mean in Japan it's, it people are, it's clear that they know that I'm not Japanese when I'm speaking, but um, in other places where I might be speaking, the accent's quite helpful because it's a clue to others that um, for example, I may be saying something that might sound slightly rude. Um, but because I have an accent, say, oh, he may, he's, I think, you know, probably just didn't get that phrase quite right there. Whereas if I could say it in a very, very perfect way without an accent, people might think, wow, <laughs> you know, uh, sorry, right. the way the accent's a little bit, I think it's helpful for me, quite yeah. frankly.
2: Yeah. I, I guess I was reaching towards some some sort of evidence of a, of a difference between childhood and, and adulthood. But for folks who want to actually understand that they should go to your, your earlier books, it sounds like, and not... Not listen to <laughs> my <laughs> characterization there. Um, let's let's talk about memory though. you you memory keeps coming up here, right? As a, as a component in what's going on in in aging and in language. What exactly is going on in memory as we age? Well you've, you've used this term working memory. What is working memory? Why is that changing as we age?
1: So working memory is your ability to hold ideas in mind at the same time. So like trying to hold in mind, for example, a shopping list or trying to mentally take off the items that you've already bought in a store. And in general, working memory is a problem for people as they get older. Um, Our ability to easily work with and transform information in uh, memory is affected. And then, of course, our ability to recall things from long-term memory is being affected as well. But in a way, that's kind of... um, a misnomer because it's also the case that old adults know a lot more than younger adults. Think about how many proper nouns a five-year-old might know, how many names of people they might know. It might only be a hundred or so, but uh, an adult in their 60s probably knows the names of tens of thousands of people that they've met or read about or heard about. And so being able to pull any one name from memory at a given moment in time is going to be affected by a whole variety of factors having to do things like context. So it really is the case that just as it's easier to find one book in a small library compared to one book in a library with thousands of books, there's going to be memory issues because you simply know so much more than people who are younger. So what appears to be a disadvantage is actually a reflection of having a much larger world knowledge and that can therefore cause word finding and word naming problems that you don't see, for example, as often as in younger people.
3: You know, I I noticed, uh, I've noticed before when I look at like student papers and things like that, that often, you know, students will go to the thesaurus and they'll choose uh, a word that they think sounds kind of better uh, for a particular, you know, situation. And it's not exactly the right word, but they don't realize that because they look at the words and they think that these, all of these synonyms may have similar connotations. And I think older adults have a better understanding of what exactly the right word would be which is why they maybe need to cast about for it a little bit more. So if you know, for example, that there's a particular you know, way of expressing yourself that has a slight negative you know, connotation, but not too much, you really want the exact right word. Uh, but that's what Roger just said. I mean, it's that you know that that word is out there. You're just having a hard time kind of pulling it up. And so I think maybe like older adults can look at the thesaurus and say, not what I need, not what I need, not what I need. Oh, right, that's the one. Whereas younger people without that much experience would just say, "Oh, well, any of these will do because
2: they're all the same." I see. So the, another uh, so the the way the book is organized, um, there's a lot of sort of uh, vignettes, almost like little little bits in, of stories. And something that you just said um, a moment ago made reminded me of the, the discussion of of irony, and interpreting emotions. Um, and I can't remember what it is that you (laughs) said, maybe evidence of my own aging here. Uh, But one of the the things that it looked like was happening in some of this research is that as people get older, they have a difficult time interpreting um, speakers as being uh, maybe ironic or sarcastic or in interpreting maybe negative emotions. Can you say a little bit about what's going on on there?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that one. Um, it really is the case that um, some forms of language are more problematic because they require a lot more context, a lot more emotional processing than other things. So irony and sarcasm are examples where you're saying something and you really mean, in many cases, the exact opposite. So to figure out uh, that you do mean the opposite, you have to take into account things like world knowledge, your knowledge to the speaker, their facial expression, the way they're saying the words, whether or not they have a history of using irony and sarcasm. And you have to com- combine all these things together. And even younger adults get it wrong all the time. But it's even harder for older adults to engage in what's called emotional processing. They seem to be less good at being able to interpret things like facial expressions and even gestures. And obviously those things are very important for things like earning sarcasm. So therefore, you do see some um,
2: deficits in, in that kind of processing in older adults. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like too, in the book, one of the things that you're discussing is the relationship between that processing, but also some of the more basic aspects um, or basic processes, I should say, that are, that are necessary. So hearing, vision, uh, some of these other underlying processes are also involved in, in those tasks. Is that right? So it's not necessarily just a direct line from aging and not interpreting irony, but there's other factors involved.
1: Yeah. One of my former students actually had a hearing loss an inherited hearing loss. And occasionally she would fail at reading my lips and just kind of nod at me in in agreement. And I would realize that she didn't understand what I just said, but was trying to kind of bluff her way through that part of the conversation. And so I think that's something that people often do in older adulthood. They can't hear everyone in a restaurant. They're having a hard time figuring out what you really mean So this kind of a smile and nod. And you assume that they understand what you've said, but in fact, they may not.
3: I think, you know, in this day and age also, it's quite difficult because, you know, we're doing so many meetings, you know, on zoom or on these different kinds of uh, platforms. And, you know, some of the, uh, some, uh, some of the, uh, the, the ways in which we're communicating now are not there. So um, I, might do a, uh, I might do a meeting, but people have their cameras turned off, so I can't see whether they're nodding in agreement or whether they're shaking their head in disagreement. There's so much feedback from others that I'm just not getting now at all. Um, I would be very hesitant to try to use um, a, a, a figure of speech like irony in a meeting like that where I can't see the person where I can't gauge what they're doing, where they can't see me roll my eyes or do those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, that's, it's a very, um, the communicative channels are, are much, uh, are, are much more confined. And mm-hmm. I think those kinds of things are
2: hard. Yeah. Let me, let me toss something out there. This uh, from, from the book you, you mentioned, um, of course, the whole book talks about uh, lots of different research and it's, you know, it's, Nicely footnoted, um, nice summaries of, of the the research. One researcher uh, kind of popped out to me. This fellow, uh, Michael Ramscar, I'm not sure if I'm getting his name um, correct. He argues that uh, cognitive decline due to age is a myth, and this is something that you point out is is controversial. We've talked about some of the relatively uncontroversial um, components of, of how aging affects language. What about this idea that cognitive decline due to age is a is a myth? Um, Why would you think that, um, what do you, the two of you think about this, um, this view?
1: I have talked to people who have certainly taken strong exception with Ramskar's point of view on this, but I think he is trying to get at a deeper truth, which is that if you regard aging as being only a negative thing in terms of language, I think you're going to miss some very important things. So there is decline but there can also be compensation and there can even be enhancement over time. If you think about a novel written by a 75-year-old, it might be very psychologically deep. It might be incredibly uh, thought-provoking compared to what the same author might have been capable of at the age of 25, for example. So this idea of being able to use language expressively to being able to um, really take one's life experiences and try to reflect those in prose, for example. I really think that that takes decades of time. And the idea of a person in their 70s or 80s writing great novels, none of us are surprised by that. But we'd be very surprised, for example, if somebody in their 70s were to do really well at Jeopardy. They may have the knowledge, but they don't have the processing speed anymore to be able to ring in on the buzzer and answer those questions. So when you take away things like processing speed, limitations working memory limitations, it really does seem like language is being amazingly well-preserved well, well preserved and possibly ha- being enhanced by life experiences and not really being affected by cognitive
2: aging in a, any major sort of way. Mm. Yeah. And you talk about, uh, you just mentioned writing, you talk about authors in in the book, in the sort of average age of first novels and, and this idea that uh, you know, well, why don't you explain the, the idea about sort of genius as being, you know, in the in the very young is sort of maybe a, a misplaced way of thinking about about authorship.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can easily think of people who who published these first novels early in life and were, um, you know, lauded for it. But the, the actual truth is that on average, people are publishing their first book in the early forties, which means they probably spent a couple of decades honing uh, their craft, and it really does take time to develop your writing to a level that is considered to be publishable um, by by major publishers. So it really is the case that authors really do kind of um, gradually acquire their craft. We see Mm -hmm. and can think of very easily the the kind of wunderkinds, but the the reality is that it really does take time to perfect one's ability to uh, take what one knows and to be able to express that in a really kind of cogent way through through writing, that's very much a learned skill that that takes time
2: to mm-hmm. uh, develop. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about the implications of your book for people who are working with older adults, because this is something that comes up in the book a few places. Uh, and here I'm thinking not necessarily. Um, of older, in the sense of 40s and 50s, as you're talking about with the, the average age of new authors, but I'm thinking um, 70s and 80s, and and people working in more elder care situations. What are some of the implications of the research in your book for people in caretaking positions?
3: Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, I think one of the things is that you know we definitely are not trying to downplay the, the real world difficulties that many people face that many people have. Um, it's meant to be, I think a very hopeful book in terms mm-hmm. of, um, the kinds of things that you can do to try to help compensate for other kinds of, uh, losses and things. And it's meant to show that aging is not passive, but you can be kind of an active participant in your aging process. And, uh, that could be helpful, but there are people you know, who definitely are having you know, real cognitive decline and, uh, this is not meant in any way to try to say that somehow, um, you didn't do it right. You know, somehow you (laughs) did something wrong. It's definitely not (laughs) meant to be like that.
2: Yeah. I guess what I was, what I was thinking of here was the, you had a section where you were talking about, uh, speaking like conversation with, with people who are older and giving, giving directions. Um, and some of, some of the, the research this goes goes me back, maybe back to the idea of um, when you're on Zoom, there's all these different cues right, that we're, that we're missing. Uh, and that if people who are in, say, healthcare and other situations are trying to speak with older people, um, there are different strategies that some research has shown are maybe better or worse. So right. the sort of idea of elder speak and you you almost like a kind of a baby speak where you speak in a certain way towards older people may um, backfire in some context. Those, those are kind of the things what I'm I'm thinking about here.
3: Yeah, that's right. And you know, the, it's interesting about elder speak, which is that um, it's, uh, it's one of those uh, things where people speak louder, uh, they speak slower, their pitch goes higher, they might be kind of sing-songy, almost speaking to an older person the way they would speak to their pet, for example, something mm-hmm. like that. And that can be very um, off-putting, uh, it Mm -hmm. can be very, um, it can seem offensive, but
2: Mm -hmm.
3: actually being a little bit louder, maybe speaking a little bit more slowly, um, that can be helpful (laughs) actually Mm -hmm. as well. So I think there's this idea of, um, yeah, you might want to slow down a little bit. You might want to speak a little more loudly, but you don't want to shout and infantilize the person either. There's Mm -hmm. a real balance there that you have to kind of strike. Um, so, Mm -hmm.
1: And there's research that shows that it's relatively easy to train caregivers not to use speak. Mm
2: -hmm. Once
1: people are made aware of this and just understand the negative aspects of it, they can be, um, they can learn quickly to not say things like, now have we taken our pills? And realizing that, you know, using the we and Mm -hmm. using, you know, this kind of um, patronizing language really can make people feel like they are, you know, um, being, being, uh, seen as being cognitively less able.
2: yeah, yeah, and I think that fits with the theme of of the book as a as a whole. I mean, obviously, when you're trying to convey information to someone that's really it's important information, uh, directions and information. it sounds like some of some of some aspects of elder speak in the sort of slower um, way of speaking, uh, and a little bit more, you know, Careful language in terms of spacing out your your words and so on might be helpful, but then the the infantilizing as you as you say is a loads on this kind of negative um, stereotypes that that are um, bombarding uh, older older people. And I think one of the things that your book seems to to emphasize is just this idea that uh, aging happens to everyone. Uh, and there are different strategies that that we can take that um, can help us meet our goals as we're in different stages of life, uh, and that that aging in itself is not something which is is negative or um, or diminishing even of our of our linguistic capacity. Right. I would certainly I would certainly agree with that. Yeah. So in the time we've got left, um, what are some other things, maybe along those lines, or maybe something that we haven't talked about that you think uh, listeners should know about your book, anything that we haven't covered?
1: One thing that comes to mind is how difficult it is to report the research in its current state in an easy sort of way, because quite Mm -hmm. often... The research is mixed. It's not the case that there is a clear answer that there are six studies and all six have shown the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's a body of research that shows us that some older adults seem to have problems interpreting metaphors, things like the surgeon was a butcher or my job is a jail. There is some research that suggests that older adults may actually have trouble understanding metaphors compared to younger adults. And -hmm. the reason might be that they're having a hard time inhibiting the inappropriate associations of that metaphor. We mm-hmm. have young adults kind of just home right in those appropriate associations. But then there are other studies that don't show that effect. And so in the book, we really are forced to say, well, there are two or three studies that show this mm-hmm. and two or three studies that don't show that effect. And so the jury is still out. And that is this kind of science as it works. And over time, we'll probably know more. But right now, we can't say for sure. Right. And I'm sure that many readers are going to find that frustrating, but I think it's honest because you really mm-hmm. can't um, uh, get people to appreciate the complexities of research without understanding that it's not always black and white. It's not always cut and dried in terms of what mm-hmm. we know and what we don't know. So that's probably the mm-hmm. hardest thing in terms of telling a good story. You have to keep saying, but there's mm-hmm. this and but
3: there's that. So that,
1: mm-hmm. that, that does make it harder, but you have to do it because that really is the truth.
2: Yeah. Richard, did you have anything to add that we had? No, I
3: totally agree with that. And I I think that, you know, that's why when you look at the book, there are so many footnotes in the back. (laughs) There's Mm -hmm. so many references and footnotes. And uh, I think that's absolutely right. We try to kind of, you know, present a a story and a perspective on it. Um, But, you know, Roger's absolutely right. There are lots of caveats and things as well. And, um, you know, I hope people would read it and say, oh, this makes sense to me. And this is consistent with my own experiences and things, but it's not always like that. And, uh, you know, I think we, we recognize that.
2: Yeah. Well, it does. It has a, a great section of references. So if, if readers are, are inclined to look at the studies themselves, they're, they're in well, in a good position to do that along, along with the notes. And, and the other thing that we didn't mention that I should probably note is that we, we have, uh, not just the illustration on the front of the book, but throughout the book, you have, uh, illustrations by an illustrator that I guess you've worked with, worked with before and, um, who, who there's a little bit of a story with him and language in the book that I won't spoil, but, uh, the, the illustrations are, are fun. It's, uh, not often the case that you read an academic, uh, book in, 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 you know, about, uh, academic research that has, uh. Has fun illustrations in it, so that's well, nice. We'll let him know that you that you said that he'll be thrilled. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I enjoy them a lot. Great. Uh, so what are you what are you working on now? Are you co authoring something else together? Do you have independent projects? What's What's keeping you busy right now?
3: Well, Roger needs to talk about his new project. Yeah. Well, I
1: um recently finished a manuscript on miscommunication, mm-hmm. and I currently am um. Um my literary agent is is looking for a publisher for that book right now. So oh, I'm great. hoping to be able to say in a few months that I that will be impressed. So great. I spent about the last year and a half working on that project, just trying to really pull together a lot of different strands of research, looking at different ways that people misunderstand what they see, what they read, what they hear.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so uh once again kind of trying to embed stories and examples kind of in the same way that we did in this book. Mm-hmm. But in the future, Richard and I have now done three books together, and yep. we're really hoping to um, collaborate in the future. Writing together is a lot of fun, because writing yep. by oneself is hard, <laughs> and being able to share that with somebody else and to kind of work things through with, with another person, there's a lot to be said for that. So I really enjoy mm-hmm. writing with um, somebody else and writing with Richard, because it really does make the job um, much easier and a lot more fun, actually.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Oh, that's very nice of you to say. You know, Roger and I, we've known each other since 1988. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've had lots of, lots of time to, to do things together. That's, that's really a lot of fun. So I look forward to doing something like that too. I'm moving. I'm in Japan now, but I'll be in, mm-hmm. I have to learn Portuguese next year. Uh, oh. I've studied it before, but I'm going, my next place to go is Brazil. So that's Great. kind of my next concentration. Is Great. To get Portuguese.
2: Because so you because you are a foreign service officer that's, that's your right. primary that's your day job so you get to get to move around. That's right. That's right the, the world how, how long will you be in in Brazil? Three years Three years. Yeah. great. You get a chance to, to get to know the area then. Yeah. And um, Roger, you're you're still at University of Memphis there. Yes yeah great. All right. well, I look forward to seeing what the two of you come up with next and uh, Roger, good luck with the, uh, the, the manuscript. Thank you. And, um, thank you both for your time and, um, I appreciate it very much. It was a great book. Uh, the link will be on the new books, uh, website as usual for listeners who are interested in, uh, picking it up.
3: Great. Thank you very much. Thanks. It was fun.
2: Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks.